0: Hello and welcome to the podcast. My name is Patrick Scally, your host as always. Now, on today's episode, I have someone who is an incredible, incredible talent, someone with masses of knowledge about the fashion industry. Sabina Rachimova is the founder of her namesake brand Sabina. She's also the co-founder of Fashion Revolution Austria, She's also the co-founder of Fashion Changes Collective Consulting and a lecturer at the University of the Arts London on the fashion industry. So I thought it would be incredible to bring her onto the podcast to dig a little bit into some of the difficulties that the fashion industry faces in its fight to become a fairer, greener, more sustainable industry. She has experience, as I say, as a designer, trained designer, also as a a founder and a leader of a a company which specializes in ethical fashion. And of course, in her academic experience, educating the next generation and consulting with brands and campaigning as part of the, the fashion revolution team. So in our conversation here, we wanted to talk about how we can support the fashion ecosystem. It's an incredibly important ecosystem in terms of its gross value add in the 30 or so billion here in the United Kingdom in it almost double the amount of the automotive industry for example but its impacts are global the supply chain touches all elements of the globe from seed to sow so to speak and so of course that creates a lot of complex issues and issues that the brands that are here in this location in hackney Fish island london and globally are exploring and trying to problem solve ways to better serve the world through creating fashion product so we touch on a lot of things in this podcast and hopefully everyone can get a little piece of something from it Uh, some direct actions that we can all take in our consumption habits but also all the way up to say policy makers who are interfacing directly with this industry so i hope you really enjoy this podcast this is my conversation with sabina Rachimova. anyone who doesn't know yourself and your work, give us a little bit of a intro into Sabina um, and what it is you do and what you're doing now and and a bit of your history and your backstory.
1: Oh my God, this is a dangerous question. So also (laughs) backstory and history. I'll I'll start with it now. So hi, my name is Sabina. Such a pleasure being here. Thank you. I run uh, my own business, uh, which is called Sabina, which is my first name. So easy to remember. And we focus on creating sustainable physical products, but also on the educational aspect around uh, conscious consumption. Meaning that we want to help the consumers to understand how they can vote with their wallet, but also other businesses, how we can support them on the consultancy side. In addition to that, I also co-founded a consultancy agency, the Fashion Changers Collective and Fashion Revolution Austria earlier this year. I work as a lecturer across universities in Europe, mainly University of Arts London, supporting the next generation of entrepreneurs last but not least, I'm also on the border of We Dress Collective, uh, which is an inclusive rental company.
0: The multi-hyphen lives in Sabina's life. Um, incredible. That, I think one of the main reasons I wanted to get you on was that depth of experience that you've had. I don't know many founders of fashion companies, um, also I should say designers first, with the amount of hyphens you have in the fashion industry. So I think you're uniquely placed to talk about an industry, which is incredibly important, very large, globally, as well as to the UK economy. But you started as a designer. Designing is your your lifeblood, I, I would imagine, still.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's funny you're saying that because I've just, just completed a project that was all about the design aspect and really going back to doing sketches and research and mood boards and unfortunately that's barely my day to day these days <laughs> and it's my own fault i know but yeah i'm a trained designer so that's the reason i moved to london as well to to the uk is because uh, i went to central st martin's and when i got accepted back when i was 19 i came to london to study so i'm a trained designer and after studying i've actually already had quite um kind of an extensive uh, uh Work experience uh, section in my CV because I've done all sorts of jobs since the age of 14. Always wanted to work in the fashion industry. Retail, jobs around, you know, uh, all sorts of things that don't exist anymore because of the internet.
0: (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) I've
1: done it all. And uh, then I finally started my own business. So it was kind of like I always had this idea. I want to be in fashion. I just think my approach towards the industry changed. It was more naive before, not in a negative sense just of kind of like expecting that you can be a designer without having to be so holistic. And it made less and less sense as I moved on to just stick to the role of a designer with the impact that I was planning to have.
0: Right, which is funny because I imagine many designers in fashion, maybe as any creative person, you you probably don't necessarily think about impact when you're making work Fashion may be one of the only ones that it's slightly closer in in terms of ideation, bringing it into real life as a tangible good. Mm -hmm. I I speak to music. I I made music, never made a physical copy of any of my music. Mm -hmm. Lots of people do, and vinyl's made a great resurgence over the past couple of years. But there isn't that direct link to the the production element, um, how it's consumed after you make it its life cycle. There's a lot of intricacies in fashion, which I think you kind of are doing yourself a bit of a disservice if you're maybe only thinking about design.
1: It's a tricky one. I think it evolved a lot. Mm. So we don't want to say that design is not enough, but I think it's about redefining the word impact. And for me, it was a big learning because I didn't come across the word for The longest time of my entire career. And then all of a sudden, when sustainability became a thing, people are like, what is the impact of your company? What is the impact of you as an entrepreneur? What can you do? What's impact, impact, impact? And this became kind of like this buzzword. But if you think about it thoroughly, like on a different level, it makes sense because There is demand for certain products, but also you have to ask yourself, what's the impact of the products that I'm creating? And it's physical, but also knowledge-based. And I think once I started to ask myself, what's actually the impact? What can I change? My career path started to really transform with that as well. And that's how I then got into academia, for example, started the whole lecturing aspect, really trying to build the bridges between the different stakeholders Uh, within the fashion industry. So, okay, I'm a fashion professional now who've been working for so many years and I have this knowledge with me. How do I share it with the next generation? And how do I not only share it with them, but show it, like show and tell, right? And how do I then make them part of the ecosystem, but also I stay a part of it, right? Because they will become the professionals and the seniors at some point. And I might be outdated because, you know, getting older, (laughs) not on tiktok
0: <laughs> not even thinking about tiktok
1: oh well the company is and I, I am consuming you know the tiktok content let's be honest there is some good stuff on it
0: you're just not a native
1: I definitely not a native no. um instagram is where it stopped with for for me being native i think this was my, yeah. la- my
0: last bit where i was
1: native everything else that is coming now is a learning curve so yeah i think it's understanding the dynamics and with that, the impact, and then really trying to understand what is it that I can contribute. We're running out of time, we're running out of options, and while the fashion industry is a very intriguing one, a glamorous one, a beautiful one in terms of industries, it also is a dirty one.
0: Mm. For me, maybe you have a, a richer experience in the fashion fashion industry, of course. Um, I have a a, a a small one, Um during a limited time of supporting brands in the space. But the brands that I was supporting were not the kind of brands that maybe your mum, who doesn't know anything about fashion, would name um, if they had to. And also, uh, the glitzier side maybe, or the stereotypical side, was not one that I really got much time around. Went to certain fashion shows, that's about as far as it went. But the dirty side that you talk about it doesn't really get talked about in those circles, maybe in a... Well, maybe it's starting to be talked about more, and maybe that's where the issue has become more public, that people, you know, they don't just buy the clothes without thinking about the origin, but of course that leaves a lot of room for things like greenwashing and ambiguity. So uh, it's a pretty broad topic, as you say, and a big issue. And I imagine as a creative person first... In an ideal world, you would just make things to match your you know, ambition and your creative desire and, and all your, your dreams, but maybe quite quickly in the process, you realise that that wasn't really what was at play here. Is that a fair?
1: A hundred percent. I think it's really coming from a physical product and learning how to make a good physical product, but then understanding that this won't solve the issue around transparency and sustainability. This is what started to frustrate me the most. Because while I can make the best product, and I think we still need them. So it's fantastic. We need brands that are questioning how we make things, you know, uh, who makes them, what's the supply chain, and with the current supply chain disruptions, it's really needed that we have innovation in that space. But we need to go beyond that as well. And I'm not saying that it necessarily has to be the same person solving both issues. But for me, it just made sense. Because the more I ask myself, again, coming back to the impact, okay, I can be innovative with my product, I can be testing certain things, but then what do I do with the learning? So there's always an outcome that I keep to myself. And this is where I realized, okay, the consultancy makes sense to partner with other companies, to do more collaborations, to start teaching. And this is, I think, why it also evolved for me in terms of trying to bring awareness. So if you would have to summarize it, it would be starting with more transparency, traceability, moving on to sustainability, putting the impact on it
0: right and that's interesting i think it is worth recognizing that order because you you wouldn't you know you didn't start out as a consultant no you started out as a creative first and and realized the limitations maybe in this industry of of being a pure creative which there's nothing wrong with that but you were inquisitive enough to go there's other things that i need to explore in order to fully appreciate what it is i'm working inside of and also i think now and why it was pertinent to bring you onto the podcast to talk about the fashion industry writ large, is the, all of those strings to your bow, of course, has opened up a lot of knowledge, I imagine, um, which is great that you're now a lecturer and you impart some of that knowledge, and also speak up the chain to through the consultancy practice. The nature of the podcast is always to try and formulate the conversation around a how might we Uh, uh, challenge or or, or a question of framing and so before the podcast we we briefly talked about what we might touch on here and we came to the how might we of how might we create a better ecosystem for ethical entrepreneurs in the fashion industry very very big obviously um, as we keep saying but so if we start at the start what is the from your experience specifically I'd like to focus on your experience as a designer and a founder of a brand what have been the main issues for you starting out that journey um, along the road that have come about by being an ethical business over not being an ethical business?
1: Yeah, I think in London in particular, we have a lot of fantastic ecosystems that you can become part of. And that definitely speed ups the game because you are at a point faster where you wouldn't be able to be in other settings. Uh, You know, I was born in Central Asia. Originally, I grew up in Austria. And for me, it was fantastic to see how London already has created these ecosystems. But I think there's a lack of connecting them sometimes. Again, we have lots of designers hanging around with each other, sharing their knowledge with each other, being inspired by each other. Then we have people working in academia, researching incredible things, really pushing the innovation, but from a theoretical perspective, exploring what is possible. Then we maybe have people working in innovation that would be divided in tech, And then material innovation. But again, they're all in their own ecosystems.
0: There's not one broad bubble.
1: Exactly. And I think we are pushing for that now. There are more and more programs who have a holistic approach. They're like, okay, let's make an accelerator where we get all of these different people together and see what we can get out of here. Or let's make these two brands collaborate that are from uh, two different spectrums within an industry or even crossing industries. And that's where the exciting uh, things start to happen. So I think we won't be able to solve the problems that we have in the fashion industry in terms of ethical and sustainable approach if we do not collaborate with other industries if we don't get out of our bubbles mm-hmm. and if we don't start connecting the different amazing ecosystems that we already have in place, particularly in London.
0: Is there maybe to the counterfactual of that? There's, there's a path dependency potentially created by this industry due to the fact that it's by nature somewhat inclusive mm-hmm. in its history, the fashion show, the front row, etc. the allure of that.
1: It's a bit elitist, yeah.
0: Yeah. And it was sort of built on that. The value was somewhat built on that. Yeah. By creating these umbrella ecosystems of, as you say, people in supply chain, new materials, actual, the designers. I mean, they're all maybe designers in all of those various industries, but the garment designer. Is there, is there, is there a pushback? Is there friction by nature of it being, well, we still got to preserve the front row and the Vogue front cover still matters? Or and maybe to, to dig into your academic experience when you're speaking with students, is is it is it is that less important to them now or do they still worship the hero designer and do they all want to be that person still or do they have you seen people go oh i'm really interested in this and that's great but i'd be happy to work for a supply chain company
1: Uh, Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. You still find people who come, especially, let's say, to University of Arts London, because they know that this place is very well known for certain people like Alexander McQueen or Galeado. But you also have a way more practical approach with business minded people. And this is where it starts to be exciting, because when you ask people, okay, you studied a fashion school or a fashion design school, everyone only thinks about one job, which is the fashion designer. They won't be able to name these jobs that you have across the industry, the supply chain, you know, the logistics behind it, but there are so many. So it's also a little bit the job of, I think, of uh, different educational institutions to tell people about the opportunities that we have in the industry. And especially now with sustainability, let's not put it in a framework where it becomes more difficult to work in the industry, let's see it more as an opportunity. So sustainability in the trend is not an obstacle. It actually creates more exciting jobs. It creates more opportunity for collaboration. It opens up the industry to solutions we didn't think before. So this is where then academia needs to jump in and be like, okay, so we're offering other courses. You can study fashion design because it's still a very valuable skill, but what about the other transferable skills? Maybe we can be offering an entrepreneurship or a course or maybe a business-related course, marketing course, and they do that, right? So we see definitely a push towards that. So people start to understand how diverse the fashion industry can be. But like with every industry, change is painful. And people will always push back because it's just more comfortable to do things like we used to. And on top of that, we do live in a never-ending VUCA environment, right? We thought, oh, we survived the pandemic, everything will be fine. But then we were hit with like, you know, the next and the next and the next thing. And depending again of where you live, there was more or less of that. And that affects people on so many levels that they will be like, I just want to perceive, just, just have something in my life. That will maintain the same. Mm. So yeah, maybe we're asking sometimes too much.
0: But as you say, change is painful. I think that's right to uh, to bookend it but with. But necessary. But necessary. Yeah, exactly. And that, I mean, the the fashion revolution work that you you know being a co founder of the, uh, would you call it like the Austrian branch? I don't the know what Austrian you, hub we the, say. Austrian <laughs> hub. Yeah, the <laughs> branch sounds like a bank. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> so if you think about, I, I mean, you mentioned the power of the universities that exist here in, um, London specifically yeah. is, is a big hub for fashion education. Um, and of course the, the, the UK economy has changed a lot over the past, what we are now nine years since mm-hmm. the, the Brexit vote. Um, and we've all, of course had COVID since then and many other challenges. Do you think the allure of coming, uh, to institutions in, london to study fashion uh, and all those subsidiary courses is really high still and is the choice of those young people to stay in this country to operate a business in fashion still as strong with all of those headwinds or you know you, you have a business here but you also have uh outpost in in austria and and elsewhere in europe how, how you know how alluring is the the, the option of having your business here in fashion now versus, say, I don't know, eight years ago?
1: Oh, uh, yeah, it's a very good question. Um, London has always been very special, and I think Brexit hit the fashion industry really badly, not in a positive way. And we thought there would be more opportunity around creating um, locally You know, sometimes bad things happen, and let's be honest. You know, I won't. I won't lie that I'm against Brexit, and I didn't find it exciting when it happened. But you always try to find opportunity in the darkest of times. So you're like, okay, maybe this will open some solutions, but it didn't. I think that long term, and we start to think to see that now, it was the worst timing ever for Brexit. If Brexit would have have happened like this one off event, without the pandemic on top of it, and without all of the other things like the ukraine war like you know the the cost of living and all of the other issues we have in the energy crisis okay we might have pushed through but it did happen in the worst of timings causing so many skilled people especially from a manufacturing perspective leaving the country so many students not even starting their studies because they couldn't afford it anymore as they were charged like internationals Mm -hmm. And of course, people who were already here struggling with exporting their goods or selling to the European Union, including ourselves. So we were producing more in the UK before. We moved some of our production to Portugal. The same thing with logistics. We did move most of our logistics to Austria now because it's just way easier. And I think it's not even Brexit itself. It's the way how Brexit was done. It wasn't really planned through and there were not enough rules. And A crazy amount of uncertainty, so you were not able to plan, and I think this is the hardest bit. And in terms of being worried for London as that special place for creativity and the hub for all all the new stuff, yes and no. Of course, sometimes you think, oh, wouldn't it be amazing if we would be a bit more (laughs) open for all the other people and they could come and we would have most of the talent. But I think so far all is good but we need to see what happens in 10 years. Once all of the research money runs out that we still currently have at universities, right, that was funded by European Union, once uh, people uh, maybe who studied here and stayed for a while decide they do not longer want to be here and then they go back to European countries. So we will look at it, I think, from a long-term perspective. There needs to be more data that we can't evaluate at the moment. But I still see people being excited about London as uh, the place to be for creativity.
0: Right. Um, And we also have... Uh, ual opening very close to where we're currently recording in stratford on the east bank yes it's happening. yeah and you'll be studying i assume in, in that building at some point when it opens yeah
1: well i well they told us september 2023 a couple of months away it's not happening long. not long now and yeah for me it will be fantastic because my uh, studio is in uh, hackney wick in fish island as you said with the trampery so it's a 10 minute walk Combining, combining my different worlds of uh, my lecturer head and my founder hat.
0: Mm-hmm. Amazing. And so, if we think about the, you know, one of the elements that I guess maybe you can speak to this, well, uh, you certainly can speak to it from a lived experience, is that creating fashion products, um, ethical fashion products, or sustainable fashion products, whatever the word might be, of course, is very difficult compared, comparative to maybe the traditional system. Um, And you also have to battle which you of course have done by not being seasonal, um, creating small batches or understanding your consumer data enough to not overproduce and and waste. The circular economy also, you've been a leader in that space. How to extend the life cycle of a garment which working with the larger fashion brands through consultancy I imagine is probably the one they might want to lean into the most. It means they can still sell a lot and As long as they're still selling, they're happy. And if it recycles, then all the better in many ways. And the garments are well-produced, so they should be able to sustain quite a a long time. But at the same time, I think the data regarding the purchasing habits of people in regards to sustainability, a lot of the time, any McKinsey report that comes out every year, I think the Business of Fashion do one with McKinsey every year, the data always leans to that people are going to want to spend more on products which they believe to be ethical, sustainable, insert the word. Do you do you see that as a brand and in your connection with the ecosystem here in London and globally of, of brands in this space? Is the, Are people voting with their pounds and dollars and euros or do, do you think people don't have the knowledge of where these products are and who are the right people? And as long as Primark put or insert any company, put something on that says they're recycling and they think they're doing a good job and off we go. Where do you see the frictions there?
1: Oh yeah, it's a tricky one. I think it's a question about responsibility here, right? Of how much can we do as consumers? And I'm saying we because while I am working in the fashion industry and I'm a fashion professional, I'm also a consumer myself. So the question is always, yes, I might demand something as a consumer. I might be ready to spend more money, um, especially if I understand that it's not about if something is too expensive. The question is, is it priced fairly. So if we rephrase that I think in our minds that's already kind of a good first step. but policymakers are the ones who have the most responsibility. Again, if we try to divide it in different groups of stakeholders, who are we talking about? We have the consumers, we have businesses and then these you can divide again into SMEs and larger corporations and then we have policymakers. And I like to compare it to the tobacco industry because I think this is a good example of what policy can actually change in terms of consumer behavior. So people know that smoking is not healthy. We've knew that since the 60s, you know, maybe not the 50s, but since the 60s, we know it's not good. Mm-hmm. But we did not stop smoking or smoking, you know, started to smoke less. It needed the policymakers to come in and say, you're not allowed to smoke indoors, in certain places outside. They made it expensive, they taxed it differently. Of course the industry and the businesses were not happy, but they had to align because again, the competition on the market changed because there were rules for everyone. They applied to everyone. So you had to rethink your business. You had to put disclosure on your packages of, you know, horrible pictures of lungs horrible and so pitches, on. Yeah. Exactly. And this is for the first time when we started seeing a proper decrease of smoking across younger adults especially, but also like, you know, next generations. So this is the best example that it needs policy that allows for SMEs to compete properly with the larger corporations, that benefits innovation and ethical choices, which it doesn't at the moment. And then the consumer, they knew that they're already ready for that change, but they also needed someone else to have the responsibility because on the system level, It shouldn't come from the consumers. So this is like sometimes unpopular, but my opinion, Mm. the consumer can do a lot in terms of bringing awareness, asking questions, really demanding, but it's the policymakers that need to be a bit bolder. And also for the um, regulations that we already have in place, there are just too many loopholes. So not enough consequences at the moment. The bigger corporations for greenwashing, and that will bring us back to the claims that you that you mentioned before. Yes, the consumers want to have sustainability claims, but who verifies them? Right, right. And how do I know as a consumer which of the three hundred thousand certificates out there is valid and what is lobbying?
0: And so you you know you're an, you have a, a brand in this space. Do you sometimes even find it hard to keep on top of all of the various metrics and forms of tracking?
1: Hundred percent. I mean, this is an industry that has a massive lack of data collection and data analysis in in the first place, but also certifications are not accessible to smaller brands because they're quite expensive. So we need to be smart of how we can uh, give the best product to the customer and the most transparency. So we decided to work with a third uh, company, like a third validation company, which is Compare Ethics for us, because they can then validate our claims, so they're not basically profiting from from saying yes to them, but they're asking the uncomfortable questions. So when we say that something is vegan or has 0% synthetics, it's not just us saying that. Someone looked at all our contracts and our invoices in the material details and verified that it's true. That makes it way easier for the customer to really understand what is happening. So this is one way of doing that. And now with the European Green Deal coming through, it will be illegal to make claims that are too vague or are not working properly if you want to sell uh, in the European Union. But again, uh, it will be illegal for the larger businesses. Me as an SME, I wouldn't have to follow these rules, but the market will change, right? Because if consumers start to get used to validated claims, they will demand it from all the brands and not only from the bigger ones. That's why we're trying to be like, you know, to stay kind of like in the game as well. I think it's a good thing to offer transparency, but then also being able to trace it through someone else and give people this understanding of why is a claim valid.
0: It's that sort of ripple effect, right?
1: 100%.
0: Yeah. And I think it's interesting to think about those policies. You talked about the the Green New Deal. I mean, I believe there's policy in California as well as um, the European Union writ large in terms of having to have your claims be attributed and, and checked in a specific way. Yeah um but does that not um you know as much as a company will have really pure intentions and, and you know is it really is it really are those big hurdle rates for a small company in fashion to you know go through that whole process that must be quite a burden on your on your time and and how do you ma- how have you managed that as you as you've come up as a business
1: It's definitely not easy, but I think we can solve that issue maybe with other things, for example, offering uh, funding or grant supports that would uh, enable you to get someone on your team to help you with the verification or to give you some budget so you can pay a company to verify your products but i don't think that there will be a future where we can avoid proper validation of sustainability claims i think also the the definition of a claim will change because now saying that something is sustainable is basically good enough but we're moving to a future where you need to be really detailed what is that sustainability aspect is it material related is it labor related Is it how you process your uh, orders, how you ship them, the logistics? What is it that is sustainable about your business? So we need to be less vague and more precise, and that will help the consumer in the end. Because at the moment, it's confusion on every corner, everywhere you look. These words start to mean nothing, and we need to claim back the vocabulary.
0: And then you think about the ecosystem that you're in in Fish Island, a small, well, large in the the area, but not large in regards to the whole fashion industry, of course. Um, And that ecosystem, you have a studio there. Um, You also have a a live network, I guess, of people who are also fashion brands, um, uh, supporting services, etc. When we think about the ecosystem of support, Um, and you specifically think about maybe the past couple of years, all those challenges, where do you think, where do you think, what's the counterfactual? Where where would you have been without that support in the sense of, you know, there's a community team who can hopefully, I mean, so I'm trying to think about how I would frame this, but you know, you're an expert in your field, so you don't necessarily need someone to come and tap you on the shoulder and tell you how to be more sustainable. I imagine if anyone's going to tap anyone on the shoulder, it should, probably be you to someone else. But um, of course, you don't have infinite knowledge. There's always something that you don't know. But if we think about how do we make a better ecosystem for ethical entrepreneurs, is that physical space where brands come together, unpick some of the sticky issues around, you know, you talked about energy efficiency and the supply chain. It's a really complicated thing. If you're just starting out out of school, I can't imagine that you have but a fraction of the information you need, even if you have the best intent. So, is is that are those physical locations the the thing that unlocks a lot of growth and benefit?
1: Oh yes, um, I think we should all be tapping each other on the shoulder and reminding. <laughs> Um, ourselves of what it is that we can be doing better. So I definitely benefit a lot from being part of the trampery, but also other ecosystems. As I said, I have this fantastic privilege these days that I am part of so many amazing networks and ecosystems where I can rely on advice, on mentorship, on help. And I also think it's crucial for me to have this continuous personal growth and learning happening for me as well. So while I am a mentor and consultant for other the people. I also have consultants on my team. I would also ask people for advice. I have a mentor. So I've been part of the uh, Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Accelerator last year for Circular Disruptors. And I got two amazing mentors to work with uh, for like six months. And that was eye-opening because you, as you said, you can, the word expert is a weird one in itself. As much as you know, as many things as you have done, there's always more to explore, especially in an ever-changing environment like the fashion industry. So things that I learned yesterday might not be valid tomorrow. And having the physical space of where you can not only witness other people doing incredible things, but you also have access to asking questions, to just have like a brainstorming session, just asking people, but also having, you know, live feedback of someone saying, oh my God, I read you've done this, this is really incredible. So it's not only you telling yourself (laughs) you're good with what you're doing, but someone else is validating that. It's fantastic. And I think a lot about the new generation, those who are about to enter the industry. And I can't even imagine how hard it must be for them because I feel for my generation, for us, and I'm like a proper millennial, like in the middle of it, um, we had time to explore what we want, where we want to be, how we want to approach things. At the moment, it feels like you need to exit university or if you're coming like from another industry, You need to have all of the answers sorted, but that without having your network, without having the ecosystem, with having all of these insecurities on top of that, it must be really, really difficult.
0: Yeah. I mean, I can't even imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, there must be so much more pressure on younger people going through the academic, uh, creative academic institutions to have a brand almost before you've started studying or presence on Instagram exactly as you say which is in some ways great because if you do come out and have a brand and you already have traction for the little world that you've built online all the better but of course I just think maybe it reduces that gestation period where you're just being creative or just figuring yourself out instead it's day one after university you should be living the high life almost by that point it seems the pressure's really ratcheted up I think for
1: a hundred percent. And quite often they forget, they look at people who have incredible CVs and they forget that these people have been in the industry for 10 years. They expect themselves to have a very similar CV compared to these people without giving themselves the 10 years. And living in a, such an uncertain time with everything that is happening, I hear more and more the conversation around the value of working in a creative industry. People would be questioned by their parents, by their families, by people around them, don't you want to do a proper job, as they say, you know, don't you think this is too risky for yourself, you will be struggling. So you know, the struggling artist, the definition of that is a very different one these days. And I think people are just questioning and giving themselves less time to explore knowing that they need to land something that works instantly, or redirect. So the pressure is uh, much higher than it used to be.
0: Yeah, and I think maybe from from my limited position in the the public sector side, I think to your point around regulation and policy, I think, I agree in many ways, I think I'm someone who, I'm like definitely small p politics and don't want uh, the local authority or the government to have too heavy a hand in shaping the industry. But as you say, I think maybe that fundamental questioning of the effect uh, of this industry on everyone every day And talking about it like cigarettes I think is an interesting way in because, well, I mean, more people wear clothes than have ever smoked cigarettes, um, but we don't look at it in the same way as like a moral hazard or a harm. Um, And I I guess that's maybe partially from a consumer perspective due to the scale of the industry. Uh, You wear one pair of jeans, you don't conceive of the millions that were made in lockstep with you or the water that goes into them and the many other inputs. So maybe it's hard for regulators to you know see it comparably but it feels like to me that like kind of liberal paternalism putting some guardrails in place to say we can't expect the consumer to check every label of every garment they ever buy but we can put things in place to mean that there's a higher chance that when they get to that moment there'll be less wrong choices for them to make and for hopefully a compounding effect over the years more people become aware of it um, you, know, you look back on the literature on smoking and a lot of the advertising was the health benefits and, and that certainly changed exactly rightfully so so but do you see that behavioral shift in the advertising of sustainable products and and the green economy and fashion I mean I feel like every other advert is a insert high-end brand telling me that they're the new best thing in sustainability which is great if it's true but is is it is the reality, is it reality or fiction that the, the tide is moving in this direction across all boats? Or is it, as you said, greenwashing? I'm not asking you to point fingers, but are you witnessing it?
1: Let's point fingers, it's fine. Let's <laughs> point fingers. I mean, you
0: posted, what was that video the other day at the... Um there was like, a, was ASOS were a talk? Was it ASOS?
1: It was Boo-hoo, Boohoo who did a whole panel on ethical fashion and how they do such an amazing job and every little step counts. And then there was an amazing group of activists uh, who, who stormed the panel and one by one they stood up and really brought facts to the table of what Boohoo does as a business and how they can never ever be considered sustainable.
0: Just because of how much they produce?
1: Not only that, but also how they're masking a lot of the things. So if we look at the marketing perspective now, because your question was if there's more happening in advertisement. Sustainability is a marketing exercise these days. So that's a little bit of a problem that we have. Yes, everyone talks about it and it is part of every marketing strategy you'll be looking at from small business to large business. I only know a handful of businesses that are actually stepping away now entirely from using the words consciousness, sustainability, because they said they do not want to contribute to the wrong claims and not proper defining these words, which I think is fair enough. But I also think they are a bit ahead of time because we didn't figure out yet how to define it. Consumers... They won't understand why you're not using these words at all. And as I said before, I'm a believer that we need to claim the words back right. and and tell the corporations and people like Boohoo and Pretty Little Things and so on to not use these words. So, again, the regulations are not harsh enough. ASUS had this problem last year of how they were investigated for their uh, conscious edit on the website, meaning that there was no real understanding of why this edit was made, how the product could be added to this uh, conscious edit, why did they chose this, what was the framework, and they were is
0: told it, off. Isn't in Internally, they didn't have a mechanism that Ex- they could oh, But explain. also for
1: the consumer, it was not it clear.
0: just said it was a conscious edit and you take that as red.
1: Exactly, okay, so well, I go on their website and I see they have regular stuff and they have a conscious edit. Of course, I go on the conscious one because right. my morals are high and I want to do well, and I heard from everywhere that fashion has a problem. And then I'm I'm shopping there, but obviously I won't pay further attention because someone else made the edit on my behalf, so I do believe them. You trust them. Exactly. Mm. And they were investigated because it didn't make sense. There were still loads of brands that are not transparent, that have loads of plastic in their garments, that do not do anything for sustainability. But what happened in the end is that they took down the edit, and that was it. And it. And again, we're coming back to policy. So at the moment, you're still allowed, to have all these ads, you're still allowed to advertise yourself to a certain extent, being sustainable, being conscious without having the proof. And it makes it very difficult for consumers and especially those who really mean it to stand out in a really truthful way and saying, no, I actually mean it. I'm not only saying I'm sustainable. And you need, you need to be kind of like, you know, now experimental with it. So what we try is we do different campaigns. So we had like, how much did you say campaign where we talked about the pricing and we
0: say, yeah, that was such a great idea. How did you, sorry to cut you off though. How how did you, how did that experience work from a, from you as an idea creator, but then how you got it, uh, the feedback you got from consumers, was it, were they close to understanding the value of a product once you had that dialogue with them in, in the open as well, which I think was really important.
1: Exactly. I think it was a long journey. So it wasn't, we didn't reinvent the wheel. There were brands out there who were talking about pricing. There were brands out there who were saying, you know, uh, radical transparency would tell you everything. But barely anyone talked about the margin, meaning what do they actually make with each garment and also about the amount of garments they would produce. And on top of that, we had this conversation for years because we've been hosting so many workshops for our uh, customers to learn certain skills like, you know, mending, sewing, knitting. And this is where we had the early stage conversations. People would be like coming in and saying they want to knit something, crochet something. And we would always ask them, what do you think, how much would you sell it before they start the workshop? And then after they've done the workshop, we would ask them the same question again. And you could see how the value grew for them because they started to understand what goes into making that type of product. So this was kind of like the first initial stage of the offline conversation around pricing. And this is the question we've been asked the most in the past eight years. Why are your products so expensive? And again, they're not expensive. They're fairly priced because right. expensive would mean that we are taking something you know, and selling it for a price that it's not worth. But if we are paying here 10 pounds for something, it just means that someone else is paying on the other side of the supply chain. And customers often don't have this understanding. So we decided to, with one of our um, uh, accessories, which was like a hand crochet bag, we decided that we will price it together with our uh, community. We put it on Instagram. We're like, Tell us for how much we sell that. Without giving them any extra background, this is what it looks like. Nice visual images so you know how the dimensions are, what it looks like, and that it's made in London. And people said everything from 20 pounds to 185, I think. We were like, we're in trouble.
0: That's a big range. People
1: have no idea. Wow. And of course, you can argue it's just different type of customers, it's just different age groups, it's a different conversation around the value of money for different groups of people, of course. But even if you take that into consideration, it's a massive gap of how much people think uh, something should cost. So we decided to make this campaign. It's called How Much Did You Say? And we would tell people exactly, first of all, how do we calculate margins and products? You know, It's not like we invent a price or not like we're looking at a... Um, competitor and do the same price. We would have labor and material going in, which is obvious, but then people don't think about tax, fulfillment, uh, card payment fees. So if someone pays with PayPal, PayPal takes money from me. If someone pays with Stripe, Stripe takes money from me and so on. And then fulfillment can be different depending again, after Brexit, it might be more expensive for brands now, depending on where your location is, if you ship worldwide, depending if you offer free returns or not. Free is never free. <laughs> you know. It's free for someone, but usually not the brand. So we open up the whole conversation and then telling people, look, this is the margin. And the margin is not what we are making with it. It actually has still go towards the rent and towards the people we pay on our team. That's also quite often the economical background that people just don't have, which is understandable. They right. think like, I don't know, I'm saying I'm making 50 pounds with every cardigan. So after 10, I made a good chunk of money. But with that I need to sell 10 to just pay a quarter of my rent, you know. Yeah, yeah. And if people start to think like that, the conversation becomes very different.
0: Yeah. And I think and an example to to build on that as well. I actually had one just before we opened the campus. I remember we had a neighborhood open event where we talked about what we were about to do, opening this fashion campus and a lot of the residents, although very happy, were a little bit unsure about the clientele and, and they were saying, well, this is all well and good, uh, it sounds great. And maybe they were just trying to be, you know, a thorn in the side. It might have been just the person or, or collection of people's character. But they were just kept saying, well, the kind of brands that are going to come in here are going to be really expensive and we're not going to be able to afford them and, you know, it's just not inclusive. And again, you were like, what's, what's expensive? As you said, it's important to distinguish by person. Of course, everyone has different budgets. And it's just the v- fact that the value of the garment has been warped by the fact that someone else somewhere in the supply chain is being abused, essentially. But you can't really remove that bit of knowledge from their life. They, they, they know at one point, or still can go get a pair of jeans for £20. I, I don't know what the cheapest pair in, on the high street would be, but very cheap. So you can't really remove that number from their brain and so all of a sudden it becomes something where no matter how much you explain it to them they, they might go oh yeah that sounds great but it's still really expensive. And so you can't really ever get past that can you and it's unfortunate that we've got into this point now where you're having to speak to the to the counter even though in reality the, the base case that you're offering is essentially going we're not making a, a massive margin and profiteering off this i'm just telling you what a fair supply chain process would cost and to cover my overheads and other elements and for me to also sustain like it's not there's no sneaky part of it where i'm siphoning off 50 of the money
1: exactly but i think it's about unlearning and unlearning is way more difficult than learning <laughs> <laughs> and that's the problem because if we would be able to get it right the first conversation we have as a society Mm. it would be so much nicer but we never do that so once fast fashion became a thing once people were introduced to five pound t-shirts the damage was done and again coming back and i know i keep repeating myself but this is why policy making and proper policy making is so important because if you allow the market to develop in a certain way and to make certain claims you're teaching a whole generation facts that are no facts And then you try to make sure that they unlearn. But how? (laughs) And it takes so much more extra effort to unlearn certain behavioral things uh, let's just make it you know, right from the very beginning. It will be so much easier, but this is exactly what is happening to sustainability. It happened to pricing, and now it happens with how we define sustainability. Now it's going to be, you know, um, with all the new rules and the claims coming through, people will be then lost again. Why do we have to talk about material in relation to labor, in relation to processes? Because they haven't heard about all these aspects. And sometimes it's also about trying to find a shortcut. These are all complex topics. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, but brands try to make it easy and accessible and sometimes they do it not because they want to cause harm, of course, because they want to help people, but making the wrong shortcut can cause a lot of harm.
0: Yeah, and I think there's, uh, I've often used, and I think we've had conversations about it in the past, um, and how you counteract that in the education system. and Certainly in England, I I always say that, that, well, textile education is a very slim part of the curriculum, probably rightly so. It's not an essential skill to learn um, in the same way that, say, maths is. But it's not not essential. And then I think the the downstream uh, impact of that, lack of understanding what it takes to produce something, which you said in that workshop that you've done over the years, where, say what it costs now, do all the work, hours of grafting over a garment, you go, wow, this is actually really, um, there's a lot of value and time and skill in this that needs to be remunerated and. reasonable way. But at school, uh, you know, it's something where you're just kind of partially taught it. Of course, due to the globalization um, effects, no one, well, I believe there's about 900,000 to a million people that work in the UK fashion industry. You know, of course, that's a lot of parts of the industry, not the production element. The production element, I imagine, is a very slim percentage of that total number. So, before you might have known someone down the road who worked in a factory um, or your grandmother might have and your mum then might have also learned how to sew because her grandmother worked in the industry and those things all become part of the milieu of your experience growing up and where you understand value in your life but now I just don't I don't see those numbers growing and I don't see the importance being reinforced so instead we're trying to always fix it at the end of the chain exactly and when you say the kind of damage is done and I know since Brexit they've introduced the T-levels, uh, and I know Fashion Roundtable tried to do a lot of work during that time around um, the shortage occupation list to stop the outflow of um, I think it was mostly EU um, migrants who had who lived here for a long time and worked in the, the fashion industry from leaving. Are we filling that gap in a meaningful way through these policy levers and these new education tools, or is it kind of as I say fighting we trying to always fight the problem at the end of the chain rather than looking at the the very first experience we might have with fashion and garments
1: it's a little bit of both we're definitely detached from how garments are made as you said because more and more brands started to produce overseas you see less people whose job it actually is to make garments who work in uh, on that side of the supply chain but not even just the making, the raw material itself. We barely grow anything ourselves, right? So it means that most of the raw material we get, if it's cotton or uh, other, you know, wood pulp or whatever that is, it would usually come from somewhere else. Meaning that again, we quite often don't even know what goes into making a material. People can't distinguish between natural fibers and man-made fibers, for example, or why there's a semi-synthetic and then we have all these new innovations coming through. Uh, You know, exactly all the vegan uh, leather alternatives. So, of course, again, it feels sometimes like you need to have a bloody PhD as a consumer (laughs) to be able to make the right decisions. And that shouldn't be the case. But in terms of bringing and that's, I think, why transparency is so important, you can be producing overseas, but tell people what it looks like, what are the factories. I know that people are often quite shocked when they see a factory from inside. When we say the word factory, everyone thinks it must be 500 people. There are small factories here in London, you know, in East London, where you would have five seamstresses sitting, but it's still a factory. <laughs> it's still yeah. considered a factory. and But it will be like a small scale production one. Again, just bringing awareness and representation for these people to also, so we don't only talk about them, we talk with them, right? But as you said, quite often it's designers that say something, it's the people at the end of supply chain, the one who are closer to marketing the product rather than making it, that get the time to speak and and the space to speak. And also maybe the support, you know, to a certain extent, but not the ones who are in the beginning. They just think, oh, I'm fulfilling my role and passing on. But I think we need to create more visibility for them. And, you know, the Copenhagen uh, Summit uh, actually had some issues, I think, last year, where they had a whole focus on garment workers. But they were criticized for the fact that they only had one person there who was running a factory and had touch points with garment workers. But how about actually bringing in the garment workers and letting them speak and also empower them to know that they can speak I think that would make a huge difference.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it speaks to that diversity point, which fashion, I think, often gets levelled against it, back to the inclusivity element. Um, But the diversity in the workforce, as you say, in the supply chain is incredibly diverse, because it's in every touch point in the world that can, as you say, grow the raw materials and and refine them and stitch together, etc. It's usually always, okay, well, workspace diversity programmes, and you go, well, you know, I only hire a handful of people, but how many hands touch this garment that i
1: Exactly, yeah. Use. Excuse. And both is important. So we're not saying let's take no. away from here and give it to that other space, but i think we need to again, the holistic approach. We need to be multi-layered. We need to be looking at products as not a final and of course we now are, you know, drowning in fashion waste. So you could argue, let's sort out what happens with the existing products first. And that's why we put so much emphasis on it. But while we are sorting out that problem, it's not like brands stopped creating new products. They just keep adding on to it. So right. that's unfortunately why we can't get away with just doing one problem at a time. We need to sort out all the fires at yeah, the same right, time.
0: Right, right. We need, a bigger, we need the helicopter with the water coming out of it, not... Of
1: more the- people, <laughs> more water.
0: <laughs> Thirsty. So if we think about, I mean, we've touched on so many incredible parts of this ecosystem, incredibly complex parts of this ecosystem. I think one of the, if we think about the the actionable things that we could, uh, listeners and uh, and ourselves uh, interacting with this ecosystem here in East London, but it's a global problem, as you said. Um, uh, aside, glocal, is that like still, in, I, I hate that term, but is it like, is that still a thought that you use to, I might not even put this in the podcast, but do you, like to think locally, act globally, does that still hold weight? Or is that, again, is that one of those things that's also been abused too much?
1: I think the word itself, glocal, I myself would be scared to use it because I would think that people assume I can't speak English. <laughs> so I would say if you're a native speaker, use it because then we believe you this word exists. If I'll start using it, I'm not sure if enough people came across it to believe me
0: that it's actually Just think you're thing. choking slightly. Okay. Exactly. Well, we'll we'll, we'll ban it from the podcast. anytime anyone says it, I'll just bleep it out like it's a swear word. Um, But if we think so, that so, I guess the more complex uh, and chaotic uh, solutions, I think we were circling around some policy regulation, um, which I think, right to frame it around action that's been taken to stop people's um, misuse of their bodies by smoking cigarettes, etc. I think the, the gravity of it, I think, is worth a double click. Because I don't think it's it's not an immaterial thing solving this issue or, or a cool creative. I think, and that's also I think sometimes the issue with it from a policy perspective. And I, I think maybe some of my light touch points with the British Fashion Council and, and, and others is uh, and government and through Fashion Roundtable was that they kind of looked at the fashion industry like the front row or the big houses, the institutions, which. Of course, to the gross value add of the fashion industry of the UK, they are big parts of that. We can't you know, gloss over Burberry's reach. Of course. They're important, but it's not the fashion industry writ large, right?
1: Exactly. And I will add, as a call to action, because you're already saying that, I would have a call to action for all policymakers and the ones who have the power to decide who sits at the table when these decisions are made. Diversify the table. You will never be able to have representation for everyone and everything, of course, but we need to do better than what we have at the moment. And please do invite people from corporations and from institutions, but also get people on board who are actually working across the supply chain, not only on one side of it, but across the entire one get SMEs on board, Hmm. do your research, do not invite the same people again, you know? Give chances to different people to voice their opinion to professionals who've been in the industry for so many years but maybe didn't have the same exposure compared to someone else for whatever reason, you know? And quite often it will be something that has touch points with privilege, right? But to diversify the tables when decisions are made will make a huge difference because then you will stop overlooking so many areas of our industry and also create this kind of hierarchy of who's actually more important to be able to speak up. If we let everyone speak up and contribute and say, it's fantastic if you do that and maybe it doesn't touch my business directly or my area of supply chain, it will change the market or how consumers behave and so on. So I think a call to action would yeah. be to diversify of who makes the decisions and who is in the process. Let's not make it easy so you get together with people who agree with you, but let's make it difficult so we have a multi-layered approach and finally start to addressing all of the issues across the industry.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think if we're going to talk about behavioral uh, changes writ large, uh, you know, I think the, the Nudge group that created the, the UK policy around the pensions, auto-enrolment, et cetera, that was incredibly impactful. And again, it didn't require, uh, you know, swarms of grants and loads of capital, et cetera. Of course, a team and theorists, et cetera, and implementation of the actual policy requires money, but it wasn't a never-ending cycle of let's flush money into the system to try and cause the outcome that we desire. And I think if we are going to look at behavioural change, we have to have representative voices
1: exactly and long term solutions that are maybe sort you know you look at it how what can i do next but never leaving the bigger picture out as well and unfortunately with most of the political systems that we have most politicians care about the next election and that's what forces them to a certain extent course, yeah. to have the short term thinking because they will be after me comes the flood you know whatever happens happens it's not my problem but this is why we leave a planet behind for the next generation that is non functional Because it's never thinking about the next generation, about their needs, about the planet as a whole, about climate that touches not only us in the now, but actually humanity in the future. It's because we have this short-term thinking of uh, making sure that this fire is out, but it might cause 700 other fires, but they will start in 10 years and that's not my problem.
0: Yeah, fair enough. And so uh, to that broader point, really looking at the long tail, uh, solutions that brands can uh, take or... The supporting institutions, as you say, manufacturing, uh, press, events, etc. What are the, in your experience? I mean, you've been very forthcoming with sharing knowledge that you've gathered along the way through your own podcast and also through, um, which we'll put the link in the podcast. And yeah, in I forgot the to note. mention I
1: also do host a podcast.
0: <laughs> Too many hyphens. Actually,
1: actually, host two podcasts.
0: <laughs> Flex. Um, <laughs> but do you think, from your experience, is that the most efficient way to get uh, change in in terms of this network that you're a part of is it is it that dissemination of you know when when something new comes out, how it works is it that leaning into the network communicating saying here's how I'm affecting this change and trying to make things better and hey I'm just not using the supplier or is that is the communication point maybe the transparency point is that an easy step for? all of those various nodes in the system to dispel some of the and, and just reduce that kind of barrier to entry. And
1: Yeah, you might say so. I think if there's one thing, if you would have to choose this one thing that all business owners would have to start doing tomorrow, it's maybe having more conversations with your team because maybe you have someone on the team with incredible ideas, but they never voiced it. With your supply chain, maybe you have amazing manufacturers who would be up for change and you can trial and test something with them. You can... You know, make a fully verified blockchain transparency garment uh, and they will be able to help you with that. So you benefit and they benefit and you're creating benefit for for the next person who will produce there with their brand. Um, But it is also a conversation I'm having with my students a lot is what can we do now while we're still studying? I think it's a lot about understanding again, what are your skills? How can you use them? How can you share them? But also what skills are you lacking? So who do you have to ask to contribute to your ideas to really join forces? And this is what it comes down to because no one is an expert in everything and we should not be. This is why collaboration exists, you know, you just get together with other people and you solve the issues. And again, looking at our industry, this is where most of the incredible things start to happen is when it's not a one person show and then someone takes all the credit. It's actually when a lot of people come in, when the government comes in and makes the money happen, you know, when yeah. institutions come in and give people the opportunity. When universities actually offer bursaries and so on, and all of a sudden a different group of people has access to something that is not accessible, unfortunately, which is education, and it should be. But this is exactly how we create opportunities by joining forces and having as many collaborations as possible. So if there's something you could be actively changing, it's working towards a, a more of an us approach rather than me and them.
0: Yeah I agree and I, I've, I've been a huge proponent especially here in, in, uh, in Hackney Wick is we have so many universities here that do I mean I know Loughborough University do a, a project called Collaborate where they offer students time as part of a in-course sort of project with businesses in the area to unsol, uh, to unpick difficult problems they're having like relevant things rather than you know, sitting in class and, and me telling you fix this and it has no practical implementation. I, I interact with young students around this area so much who are incredibly talented, on to the next thing that I don't even know exists, would love to implant that and try that in a business and for the business there's no cost, cost incurred because they don't have to implement it or maybe they could implement it and it could be a huge change to how they operate their business which is incredibly beneficial to their margin or as you say, the ethical... Uh, certifications of their business. And I definitely think there should be more of a, a streamlined approach, but trying to really maximize the time that young people spend in a local area, studying a specific subject, surrounded by businesses in those industries who are incredibly uh, pressured day to day running their business and would love the human resource and someone to take an interest in what they do. And you know, I, ju- I just don't think we maybe maximize the benefits of Programs like that, in my experience. And I do think there could be a lot of benefit from that.
1: Yeah, I agree. And quite often, again, like we said before, how sustainability is seen as an obstacle rather than opportunity. I also think that sometimes collaborations are seen as such, right? People are thinking, oh, it might be extra work for me to train someone, to sit down, to actually have another. Team working next to me, and not only me doing doing it all the way I used to, but we need to change the mindset on that, you know. And it might be challenging, but also, what is the value? And again, it comes back to the whole impact. If you're already running a business that is uh, purely focusing on consciousness and sustainability, then it is more than the profit that you're after. It's more than the money you're after. It is what your legacy, what are you leaving behind? What are you doing for the local communities that you are part of because you are somehow taking from them as well, right? Because they buy from you, they ideally contribute to the success on uh, in, from an economical perspective to a business. So let's also bring in the social aspect. Let's bring in people, let's bring in planet. Let's talk about who are the stakeholders, who should you be reporting to and who should you ideally be benefiting with the business that you have. And I think by switching the mindset here slightly, um, the approach would be a bit more different as well.
0: And you make me think there, in, in semi-closing, uh, probably quite a broad question. Um, so hopefully you, uh, you aren't cornered or, or caught off guard by this one, but you, you make me think of something. And the whole centre of this conversation, our anchor, has been around an ecosystem to support ethical entrepreneurship, specifically in fashion. When profit isn't the scorecard solely, for a business,
1: so we cancelled capitalism. Yeah, I like it.
0: Yeah, there we go. Um, for an ethical business, of course, you know that that epistemic nature of at the end of a period. You know, your profit and loss statement, your income statement, isn't the end. Uh, it not the beacon of light that it maybe is for a business that doesn't have a a, a purpose. Uh, you know, a, a constitution that says it does things a different way on purpose, and in many ways reduces its profits by nature of doing that on purpose. How do you, when you talk there about legacy, how do you then think about profit as one thing, the purpose and and the, the impact your work's had? How do you create a fair balance, a uh, proportional balance, uh, a weighted index of, of, of how the legacy of your work sits? Do you, do you Has that changed over the years? Are you in a place now where you feel comfortable with with that dynamic? How has it been?
1: Yeah, that's a fantastic question. So uh, definitely it's important to acknowledge that even if you're a sustainable business, it's not dirty if you want to make money. Because quite often the conversation is a bit of a delusional one. I have it a lot with some of my fellow entrepreneurs as well, being like, yeah, I don't necessarily need to make money. It's a very privileged thing to say that you do not need to make money, especially when you live in London and everything is bloody expensive. So let's, let's I think the, the first rule is like, it's absolutely good if you're making money with your sustainable product or service, because it just means you're uh, stable, healthy financially, and you can take more risk in terms of impact in the other areas. And when we talk about measuring it and you saying, you know, some people maybe want more, it's also absolutely fine to run a sustainable and conscious business and say, I am more about profit, but I'm not harming people and planet while I'm making the profit. That's already so much better than most of the businesses are doing out there. Or you can really be a bit like Patagonia and rethink who are your shareholders who do you answer to who do we want to benefit from the profits that we are making so this is a little bit rethinking the system of capitalism without entirely cancelling it i think the issue we have at the moment of what would we replace it with and we have all been socialized or most of us in a certain extent in capitalism so we come back to the topic of unlearning it will be the same people trying to run an alternative system to what they used to and quite often the system then starts to look a lot like the old one, as we know. Yeah. That That's a tricky one. And for us as a business, I think, again, coming back, I started to understand that there is the business, um, Sabino, that makes the product and offers consultancy. And the business can make certain amount of money and can have a certain impact for other businesses, people, consumers. But there's also me as a founder and adding that on top of that and making little frameworks like, I don't know, I always make space like two interviews per um, month with students to contribute to their thesis and their B.A. and M.A. Uh, you know work, just to make sure that there's also this coming through, and I find enough time for this. Or having this eighty twenty approach that I'm starting to do. So twenty percent is free work that I do for those who maybe can't afford to pay for consultancy, but are desperate. Uh, to get some knowledge, you know, or maybe talk uh, about certain topics, then 80% has to be paid so I can sustain and maintain that kind of help for those who can't. Little frameworks you can build for yourself, but I would say it's a very personal thing that you should run by yourself so you don't burn out, so you're up to date with your own mental health requirements. And also just not forgetting, of course, just because you're a social entrepreneur doesn't mean you owe anyone anything.
0: Yeah, beautifully put. So, thank you, for one, um, I feel like we've put many parts of the fashion ecosystem to right here. That was an intense conversation. Yeah, but yeah. this is what we do. We do Agreed. this over a casual coffee. This is, this is what... Since
1: 2019,
0: since, yeah. Since, yeah, Estid 2019. Um, so if anyone wants to, well, it's. I think this is great, this is the first time I've ever been able to say, buy your products. <laughs> mm-hmm. if people want to buy your product if people want to follow uh, yourself and your your, your work and your, your thoughts online where can they find you where should they look
1: yes well thank you for mentioning that and for giving me time
0: sometimes that some is, i think in our conversation it's for so long now it's been like so less about what garments are you are you creating
1: yeah beautiful ones so we make products that are entirely free of conventional synthetics and are ethically made, uh, produced currently in Portugal, the UK, Austria, and Serbia. So we are expanding our supply chain. And as I said before, our claims are verified by Compare Ethics, which is lovely as well. And you can find it on sabina.com. That's S-A-B-I-N-A dot com. You can follow us on Instagram under sabina underscore com. And you can also, you know, connect with me on LinkedIn. My name is a bit complicated, Sabina Rachimova. I would say look into the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm always so more than happy to hear from people you know about their thoughts the projects they're working on maybe possible collaboration so definitely reach out Instagram and LinkedIn are the best uh, places to do so
0: amazing we'll put all the things in the show notes Sabina thank you for taking the time I really appreciate it
1: thank you so much Patrick it was very nice